0: I mean, look, you've been doing this podcast since 2014 and how many people then were probably like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so I think for us, we're like so many more people are excited about spoken word audio and even understand now what Audible's doing. And so if they're using Audible and Clubhouse and whatever apps or services they wanna use, that's exciting.
1: Podcast Junkies episode 256. Welcome back. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, I had a great conversation with Damona Hoffman, host of Dates and Meets and Fresh Books I Make a Living. This week I have the pleasure of speaking with two guests, Allison Williams and Darren Beddell. Allison is a principal at Newark Venture Partners, and Darren is the director of strategic initiatives at Audible. They join the show to share their collective experiences in the audio industry including podcasting and spoken word. Allison and Darren share a rich discussion about shifting listening habits of consumers of audio, how to combat the scarcity of female founders, and the exciting opportunities that exist in audio and spoken word. We talk about the emergence of social audio platforms like Clubhouse, as well as the incredible projects they're both working on. Full show notes at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 256. This episode is brought to you by right and specifically the scarlet 2i2 sound card one of my favorite go-to sound cards something i use for each and every podcast recording the 3g line is a go-to for all new podcasters find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right and the link will be in the show notes as well make sure you stay to the end of the episode where i reveal this week's retention hashtag but for now let's get into this conversation with allison and darren so alison williams principal at newark venture partners and darren Bidal, director of strategic initiatives at audible thank you both for joining me on podcast junkies
0: yeah thank you for having us excited to chat excited to be
1: here. so we were connected alice and i had a brief chat already and uh connected and suggested that this might be a good opportunity to talk about podcasting been doing this show since 2014 just because i was naturally curious about the podcasting industry and since then as both of you may have noticed that i thought i was late in 2014 when i started podcasting about podcasting but it seems like so many interesting things have happened in this space so but i'm curious first of all to start how you two met so i'm wondering which one of you has the best story
0: yeah, I can kick it off because I would say the origin is probably the Audible-NVP relationship and then can talk about how Allison and I met. So on the note of having been in spoken word, maybe not podcasting for a while, you know, Audible's been, been doing at this for about 20 years, but part of the Audible history is that we're based in Newark. So we've been in Newark, I believe, since around 2008. And a big part of that is just our, our founder, Don Katz, is really passionate about the economic redevelopment and, and Newark renaissance yeah. and bringing sort of social and economic impact into Newark. And happy to talk more about that after and like what those initiatives look like. Um, but with NVP in, I think, 2015, he'd had this idea for a while of, how can we bring other tech companies into Newark um, and make more of a tech ecosystem beyond some of the companies that are already there? And so that was sort of the origin of of Newark Venture Partners, which Allison can talk about MVP, I'm sure more eloquently than I can. But in terms of our relationship, when I joined Audible, now I'm coming up on two years, uh, part of our relationship and the Audible-NVP relationship is in general is they developed an audio thesis for investment. And part of my role was looking into potential strategic investments. And so I collaborate really closely with Allison on looking at startups in the audio ecosystem to help understand where there might be current or future alignment with Audible and so that's sort of like the genesis of our relationship and some of the investments that that NVP has done.
2: And to branch off of that, New York Venture Partners, we are an early stage venture capital fund. We have, as Darren mentioned, Audible is one of our anchor LPs. And in addition to Audible, we have seven other corporate LPs in the fund, so Prudential, Panasonic, TD Bank, R. W. J. Barnabas Health, Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield. And the fact that we are funded by corporates is, and a variety of corporates, is really unique to the way our fund is structured. And if you looked at other early stage venture funds, they have... LP capital but it's investor capital that's more you know passive and seeking returns whereas at Newark Venture Partners we had these incredibly engaged corporates who provide a tremendous amount of value to us and to our investors with Audible I meet with Darren Darren or someone from the Audible team every other week to learn about their take on the audio market to talk, discuss investment opportunities, but also just to learn about you know, pain points and opportunities that they see in the spoken word space. And that is you know, gold for an early stage venture capital fund, because then we can take that information and go source investments around it. So, you know, we're so, you know, we're really just so grateful for this close partnership that we have And it's allowed us to be really leaders in the investment space in the audio world because we get to lean on the incredibly smart talent and the deep experience that the Audible team has.
1: Darren, I'm curious just personally, like what your engagement with spoken words, but with audio, with podcasts, like where that started and where, you know, how that journey began for you.
0: Yeah, sure. So I think for me, from a career perspective, assuming that's what, is that what you're asking?
1: Yeah, just career and personally, like how you discovered podcasting and you know, oh, just like. You know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's sort of two threads that collided. So one is that from a career perspective, I've sort of always been at the intersection of technology and media. Even sort of starting in college, I would say the interest was more in music. I used to do like a lot of live event production and then I worked at an interactive video company for four years but I think that's really where that being passionate about storytelling in new ways sort of emerged so it was innovative technology it's the company is called echo and it they it's basically you can choose the outcome of your story and as I was there I worked a lot on music videos and they started getting into original content and for me I was like okay no I love tech and media, but I think I knew I wanted to move into a more strategic role. And I was at business school and sort of thinking about what I wanted to do after. And this is where I was like, okay, I know I love storytelling. I know I love tech. And that was as my like personal passion, I would say. I mean, I have a a story of what got me into it that probably a lot of other people have, which is serial. I'd always listen, you know, I think or early on listen to this American Life and Serial. But I think that was this moment of like wow audio storytelling can okay
1: so if you just want to pick it up from um live event interactive video experience
0: (laughs) oh yeah sure so like from the yeah
1: yeah that'd be helpful yeah yeah
0: yeah sure yeah so in terms of career i would say i've always been at the intersection of tech and media i think early on i was figuring out what i was interested in and i was very involved in a lot of live music and event production when i was in college When I graduated, I wanted to do something a little more innovative and more in the tech space. And I was at Echo, an interactive video company for about four years. And when I was there, we really started getting into original content. And so sort of interactive content, meaning you could choose the own ending to your story. I think it's becoming a little more popular today. More people might know what that is. But I wanted to move a little bit more into a strategic role, which it's kind of fundamentally hard at a, at a startup. You There are a lot of investors and a board that's very... It can change often what you want to do. And so I went to business school and coming out, I think that was where I was like, I know I love storytelling. I want to be in tech. And I was really seeing that audio was at this inflection point. And so to me, going to a place like Audible was really exciting. And I think in terms of my personal passion for first audio. I think I had an an origin story that was like a lot of other people with becoming familiarized with podcasts was like Serial, This American Life, some of the really early stuff that you're like, wow, this has the ability to build a world around me. And then I think when I came to Audible, we were, and we are at this point where, you know, the hardware, the everyone having AirPods in constantly. And 5G connectivity, and sort of everything is now converging on this moment that's really powerful of audio being all-encompassing all the time, which I think is why audio is at this crazy inflection point that maybe other forms of media hit earlier.
1: Yeah, I think, I don't know if you either of you remember, like, I guess it was 90s when people would have, like, the Bluetooth headphones, and that would be, and you'd see them walking in the street, and it looked like they were talking to themselves.
0: Yes. <laughs> Well, no one thought AirPods were going to be a thing. People are like, everyone looks crazy. There's no cord. And as we were coming on, I was like, I'm going on a podcast. Is it embarrassing? My headphones have a cord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, can I do that?
1: <laughs> and then uh, how do you think, Darren, just to follow up on that, is there anything that you see as different in an audiobook experience versus a podcast experience? Because I, I think a lot of people just lump it into a spoken word category. But is there something distinctive about those formats?
0: I, I mean... Yes and no. I think if we're literally defining it, a podcast might be, you know, short form episodic content. But I think the way I think about it is what is the best format to tell the story a creator is trying to tell. And so increasingly, I think we're probably genre agnostic. Like we're not going to say, oh, this needs to be an audiobook or this needs to be a podcast, but it's more what is fitting to tell that story. And so I think that's probably how we think about like our content creation sort of Audible's bread and butter is this really like premium narrative storytelling. And there may be a story that fits better as, you know, 30 or 60 minute increments or something that works better as an eight hour title. But for us, if it's a great story, I think that's what we'll pursue. So there's the definitional, that's the word, difference. And then how we think about a story, which is like, we have, for example, our words and music series, which a lot of those are 90 minutes, and it's a combination of spoken word and music. And that genre just fits better in 90 minutes. So I think for us, it's less about defining what it has to be and more how the story fits into a format. That
1: makes sense. Allison. what part of Darren's origin story with re- or how it relates to uh, audio relates to your experience as well, like as you were experiencing this new format
2: Well, I would say from a little bit more from my perspective is it, it's really came more from an investment investment professionals you know perspective on the market. I've always you know I, I've enjoyed audio content and I've been a podcast listener for a long time, but it was really when I started to see, a lot of the the value being recognized in some of the large exits that we've seen recently that i really started to dive in to be honest and really pay attention to the market and spend time every day perusing you know podcasts and following podcasts like your own to understand more about the market so i think i came into a little more of a business perspective but and also seeing that transition to you know, wireless headsets and Bluetooth headsets and the fact that we are now with smart home devices and we're not, we don't have to be tied to a device to be listening to content. And it's an incredible way to multitask, listening to content while you do the dishes or clean your house. And that obviously has really grown the market and that makes it very interesting to me as an investor.
1: I'm curious if that's always been a topic, if finance investing has always been something that's interested you, is that what you studied in college?
2: No, in college, I went to Wharton undergrad at Penn. I was a finance major. I went into, into banking. I was not in this realm at all. And I would say it wasn't. It was more, again, it's the, the recent mm-hmm. shifts that we've seen in the market that has gotten me more interested.
1: And when you think about, you talk about investment, there's a seems to be a renewed interest in angel investing, VCs, like people getting into it for the first time, and maybe not understanding it completely. And I'm wondering, for people, you've probably had people ask you for advice in terms of like first-time angels, first-time VCs, and, and this is seems to be a topic that's probably scary for a lot of people that, that are just getting into it with a lot of jargon, with a lot of like, you know, things about, you know. When you're talking to companies, you're asking them what their ARR is and all these little terms that, that start to make sense, total addressable market and figuring these things out. So what's a just a maybe 30-second primer for people that are just trying to understand like how you think about investments? Because you probably come at it with a lens that's a little different than other people do because when they see a company, they yeah. see the, the benefit of it and the use of it on a personal level, but I think you look at it from a different perspective.
2: Yes, so exactly. So a big part of my job is, so from an investor's perspective, you know, a big part of my job is understanding that the total addressable market and the market size, because looking at how we need to provide. So at a venture fund, traditional return results is, you know, a third of your portfolio companies are big successes, a third just get your money back, and then a third actually lose your money. So you have to invest in companies that have a massive market opportunity in order for you to overall have the right returns for your investors. So a lot of my time is spent on overall market potential, looking at the potential exit scenarios. What are the multiples that traditional exits happen in that market? Who would the buyers be? How much money do those buyers have? a lot of time is spent there. So that's really the first part when evaluating an investment opportunity is just market size. Is it big enough? Can it be big enough for this to get the return that that's needed for the fund. And then of course, you know, it's does the idea make sense? Does is there really a pain point that's being solved or a big opportunity that's being taken advantage of? How can you see that within the initial traction of the company? Even if it's a young company, you can look at different engagement data to see what kind of success early success and what kind of early traction that the company is is starting to have and then for an early company you want to look at the team make sure that it's the right team solving a problem that they deeply understand that they have the right background for and then lastly i we do look at you know their ability to raise capital because As you know, in the venture world, most all businesses basically are losing money. They have to continue to raise money to fuel their growth. Can they do that? So those are really the main criteria that we look at. For angel investing, I think it's hard. I think a lot of people do it almost for fun because it is really fun, but you're not gonna have the diversity that a venture fund has. In our first fund, we invested in 84 companies, for example. So you should go into it knowing that you could lose all your money and you need to get comfortable with that. But I say the same thing to founders, actually. Mm-hmm. So a little bit about my background is I was a founder myself. I started a company called Yarly, which is in the photo cloud storage space. So you could think of us as iCloud, but this is before iCloud existed and we were cross platform, whereas iCloud is, is solely for Apple users. So started that in 2011, sold in 2014, worked at a few other startups as well. So, you know, even for founders, I get that founders coming to me a lot or or hopeful founders asking for my advice. And I also say that, you know, the success rate is really low. You need to really, you know, it's going to be an amazing education no matter the outcome, but you need to know that, you know, it's a really hard path and if things go well, it's fantastic, but there's also a really good chance, a very good chance that they won't go the, the way you expect. So just Know that going into it and, you know, think about your own financial, you know, situation and what's going to, what you're comfortable with and go into it, eyes wide open.
1: Yeah. And I think it's a learning experience for a lot of people, especially when they're coming into it for the first time. And I imagine founders, when they have that conversation with you, there's probably a portion that leave excited and a portion that leave a bit (laughs) deflated because they're just like, well, or just the real, you know, you giving them the realistic viewpoint is probably yeah. sobering for some of them as well i would imagine
2: well i think it probably is sobering but i it wouldn't feel right for me to say you yeah, know quit your day job and you know, put all your eggs in this basket and, you know, because my advice is usually the opposite. It's, you know, continue to work at your day job until you know you have the right team and you have some product market fit and maybe you even have a customer. But go as far as you can having that additional income stream before you make the full leap because, you know, because you can, because you can. I think now with technology, you actually, it, it allows people to, you know, actually take on a, a side hustle. And if you can do that, stretch that out as long as you can.
1: Very helpful advice. Darren, did you have an entrepreneurial streak growing up at all?
0: Oh, yeah. I had a big entrepreneurial streak. And I actually think what's really surprising maybe to myself is I always thought that maybe I would want to be a founder. And I actually don't think I've ruled that out. And that's part of the reason coming out of college that I went to startups, I think I was like, Oh, let me learn about being at a startup. And eventually I'll found one. And I've come close a few times, or I've done the side hustle. um, And actually, when I was 23, maybe, or 24, I just started a new job. And I had a side hustle that someone was like, ready to invest in. And I was like, I was actually at the point Allison was just talking about where it was kind of the someone was ready to give us money and it was the quit your job point. And I was 24 and had no income and had just started a new job. That was a job I really liked. And I was like, do I quit? And then I didn't. And the company exists now and does extremely well. Not that I regret it. It wasn't the right time in my life, but I'm like, probably could have been something, but I think I'm actually surprised in myself how much I like being at a large company I think there's an arrogance that when you're young of like, you look at the Mark Zuckerbergs and the whoever dropped out of college and started a company at 20 something. And I think I had an arrogance that in my early 20s that I actually don't have now where I was like, I can start a company now and I know everything I need to know and I'm going to be a great founder. And then I think being at Audible and working with so many smart people who have a ton of experience, I'm like, there's so much I don't know, and I think that later in my career I would be a much better founder. And you look at these, there's some statistic where yes, the like early twenties founders, the the Evan Spiegels, whoever get the most attention, but they're five in a million of them. Whereas you look at founders who start businesses in their 30s or 40s who have actually had experience and understand pain points and understand product market fit and understand how to pivot. And the success rate of those businesses is much higher. So I think probably most people in my life, myself included, are a little surprised because I was always... Like, when I was 13, I started a belt making company. I sold belts to my schoolmates. Like I had an early entrepreneurial spirit for sure. And I don't think that's dead by any means, but I'm like, wow, I've learned so much by being at a business that has been successful for 20 years, but also had a lot of hardships before it got to where it is today. And that to me, I'm like, I am very intellectually simulated on a regular basis. And I think that for me is what I look for in in a job, you know, like the learning and the continual growth. And so I feel like I have a lot more to learn. And what comes next might be at some point starting my own thing where I'm like, oh, I actually understand some real problems now.
1: That's interesting. Allison, I'm wondering if you can talk, because as Darren was talking, I was thinking about the... um the scarcity of female founders, right? Because when people hear these stories, you know, it is the Mark Zuckerbergs that get the attention. And I'm wondering if it's just what your thoughts are on that. And if it's obviously it's the old boys' network and we can, you know, go down that rabbit hole. But I think it's just there wasn't enough resources to support female entrepreneurs and the different challenges they face and whether it's around family or other preconceived notions or just different Fears that they have when starting a company that are different than a man would have. So I'm wondering, as you see new founders coming up, if this is something that's top of mind for you, and you know what can be done to foster an ecosystem that supports more female and you know founders of color?
2: Mm-hmm. You touched on so many different aspects of this topic. I will say that when I was a founder myself, I found fundraising to be frustrating. And I don't know if that's because I'm a woman or fundraising is always frustrating for every founder to achieve, but I found it, you know, it's difficult to get in the door and you kind of also, you scratch your head on some of the companies that are able to get into the door and raise money for, a, you know, for businesses that you just don't really, you don't really get, you know, it was, you know, a gift company or something that was just kind of like random. And you're like, you know, how did that get $3 million of funding pre-product pre-launch? So when I came over to the investing side of the table, I really felt like it was important that we did sourcing differently, that we didn't just wait for things to come in through our network, which a lot of funds do. They really lean on their investor network heavily, which we do as well. But it was really important to me that we also went did outbound efforts to get in front of founders and that we took as all the barriers down for a founder to get in front of us. And because of that, because so we actually built a small team in house that only does sourcing only does outbound marketing and getting in front of early stage founders. And we use a variety of different channels to get in front of founders. We're part of Slack channels, we do kind of guerrilla marketing stuff on social media, we look at every inbound message that we get. And the result of that is that we just we look at a lot of companies. I think last year we looked at about 5,000 companies that qualify for criteria, which is a lot. And then, and some of that is when we do Outbound, it's also educating sometimes a founder on the VC market because maybe they're just not aware that VC is even an option to them. So there's some education that's part of it as well. And what we found when we looked at so many leads we were able to keep the bar incredibly high and consistent for all of our decision-making is that when the chips fell, we have a very diverse portfolio. So if you look at our fund one, 54% of our founders are female founders or founders of color. Crunchbase actually just named us as a top 10 venture fund from a diversity perspective. And we did not have any targets when looking for investments It's not part of our process. We don't have targets. But because of our sourcing strategy, because of our sourcing process that we have in place, because we look at so much, we do see incredibly qualified women and founders of color, and they make it to the finish line. So it's like an incredible data point for the industry because I have friends who say to me, "Allison, how are you able to achieve that?" We, you know, we want gender parity, we want more diversity, but we just can't. We just don't see enough companies. And, and my response is just, "You're probably not looking hard enough." You know, and we really it's important to us to our fund that we really hustle and that we get ourselves in front of every potential founder that deserves funding. And we're not doing our job if we're not hustling. And I think we're starting to see a shift in how venture investors think about sourcing. It used to be a point of pride when a venture fund would say, we only take warm leads from our community. And now that's actually being looked down upon because it's saying, well, you're not giving everyone a fair shot but nvp has always had the mindset of we, no stone goes unturned we want to look at every founder and we're going to take every barrier down for a founder to get in front of us we've always operated that way and you know we not only do we think it's the right thing to do we feel we're delivering the best returns to our investors with that kind of process
0: i also think in there there's that like part of it and you know you have other lps besides audible but we have a shared mission there which is in some of our audio investment, one, I mean, a premise for our creators is just amplifying diverse voices. And we have our podcast development fund for creators who may not be able to access funding otherwise, but like an investment for NVP, that's a great example too of a content creator that has content on Audible is ABF Creative, which their mission is, you know, I think it, Allison can probably speak to it better, but a podcast that amplifies diverse voices. And so there are companies like that that are also great fits, great investments for NVP, but also really logical fits with Audible.
2: The other thing I'll add to this topic is that there is a bias that people want to hire. People want to invest in people who look like themselves. And it's an unconscious bias, but you know, it's been studied that that exists. You, know, you see someone who looks like yourself. And that's, that's appealing. One thing about MVP is that two out of the five members of our investment committee are women. So myself and my partner, Joanne Lynn. And we did notice that, that our number of female founders did rise up with us, the, the two of us joined the fund. Our investment in female founders did go up with that, with the addition of two women to the investment committee. And I think we're seeing more women joining venture i'm part of an organization called women in vc which is an amazing network for venture capitalists females to help each other provide deal flow support each other and that group is growing by the day so i'm seeing i'm really optimistic about also you know investment in female founders with more women being on the investment side of the table
1: i don't know if you saw a recent article that harvard did a A test program where they invited people from kids from low to moderate income neighborhoods who would never have any opportunity to get into Harvard. And they created this like literacy or literature program. It was like an eight week, basically, an actual course at Harvard where you would get Harvard credit. And, you know, no surprise to any of us, but I think, you know, a lot of these, you know, there's like, you know, Latina students, and you know, women of color, and, and just people replied to the program, got in, and got really good grades, and it was like pre Harvard stuff. And even you know, the folks at Harvard, are just like you know, it's becoming clear that you know we always think that we're going to get the best students from these certain demographics, and and when we expand, you know, and something to, you're both speaking to, our thoughts about where these people are, I think they just if you're growing up in a poor neighborhood you never would even think that Harvard is an option for you. Right. And then when you do, and someone encourages you, and someone says, yeah, apply for this program, try it out. And then you do great. And you're like, wow. So now this one woman that they highlighted, I think it was in the New York Times. Now she's she's going to go to, I think, Brown University now. And she was, she was like planning to go to like the local community college. <laughs> and so it's crazy.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. I think that's why, and this is what Allison was getting at. Like, uh, this is a personal belief that like, the pipeline argument for more diverse candidates is bs like you know there just aren't enough women or people of color in the pipeline like that's not true you're just not looking in the right places like go to hbcus go to you know don't just go recruit at harvard and yale and princeton for your undergraduate investment yeah. banking class like you're not looking in the right you're not going to the right places so
1: very interesting so uh, huge shift in audio experiences last year and how data is, and how audio is consumed and people's listening patterns because of COVID. So Darren, I'm wondering if you could speak to a little, I think you've done some research on that because patterns did change as podcasters. We saw big drops in our listening audience, which thankfully has come back for some, but a different type of listener. There is no more commute, at least as we knew it before. So can you speak a little bit to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you just alluded to the trends that we're seeing across music, podcast, audiobooks, which is the commute went away. Like that's, you know, the most popular listening time. I think what's been really interesting for us, and I think, you know, there are sort of publicly reported numbers that the listening sort of minutes per day bounced back, but just spread out in much different ways. So instead of having these peaks at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m., you see a lot more, consistent listening throughout the day. And I think people had to understand how spoken word fit into this new normal. And I actually think that it will be really interesting post COVID because I mean, like I'm, there is all the data, but I'm also an N of one in that I listen kind of all the time now, like, I've been living, you know, by myself in this apartment for six months. And like my audiobooks are my friends. And so I think what's really interesting is people have realized, you know, maybe before you turned on your the daily in the morning and your audiobook at night on the way home, but you weren't really listening at other times. And I think now we're seeing this spread throughout the day, which is, you know, I go on a walk every night, and that's when I listen. To my audio book, and that we're seeing a lot more time spread throughout the day, I think that will probably stick where there's been such a need for escapism since COVID started, and also just this boredom that people feel and, and trying to figure out like how to fill all of the time where, you know, you're at home. And I think even it's a stress release for a lot of people. It's a way to sort of get out of your own head. So we see, you know, pre-bedtime listening, we see maybe like shorter increments too, when people are going on walks or doing their laundry or washing their dishes. Like all this time you wouldn't have spent at home now can become listening time. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how it progresses because some people are going to go back to commuting. And I imagine, you know, we will see that bump again, but certainly life isn't going to return to normal. And a lot of people, I think, have fit listening into their lives in new ways that I know, at least for me too, didn't exist before. Like I'm constantly consuming content in one format or another.
1: Alice, what have you seen? Because I, I know uh, personally, I, I actually like volunteer to go to the grocery store because I'm like, oh, that's my talking <laughs> to a, at least a podcast because <laughs> there's no. I'll go walk the dog like because yeah. I get to like listen to like a, a podcast during that time because there's otherwise you know no opportunities to be outside or, or take a walk.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I uh, you know content creation, the investment opportunity within content creation podcast content was never really an interest of ours when i joined the fund we were mostly focused more on you know technical tools that we could invest in but over the past year content really has become an interest to the fund because we see you know content is king and we see you know the largest media companies spending almost 20 billion dollars a year on content and that's really interesting to us. And I think COVID has opened up all of these new different listening opportunities and the desire and the demand for content to fill even more needs. So, you know, I think, you know, prior COVID, you know, the commuting time, you'd wanna, you know, get an update on, on news or listen to an audio book, but now we do have more time to be entertained and we don't have people to entertain us. So even for myself personally, I, we recently invested in a company called Meet Cute, which is developing audio rom com content and they published new stories every week. They have an incredible process to put out this new content and each podcast is its own unique rom com story. And I found myself, you know, I work so much more now during COVID than I did before because I have nothing else to do. So I found that it's an amazing way to just shut my brain off a little bit and listen to me cute content. That's really just easy listening. I don't need to think too hard, but it's enjoyable. It puts a smile on my face and maybe I'll take 10 minutes to listen to a podcast in the middle of the day, just because I need a moment just to take a break. So like, that's a type of behavior that I wouldn't have had normally, but I Mentally, I really crave that now, and the meet cute content is kind of the perfect light listening content that I'm seeking. That yeah, that's very enjoyable.
0: I think something else you touched on there is, I mean, even look at us right now. Like we are creating audio content, and we're all sitting in our own living rooms. And something that was a major issue in the beginning of the pandemic is, I mean, look at you had to stop shooting. You couldn't be on a yeah. film set anymore. This was like billions of dollars of content that couldn't be made anymore when all people wanted to do was sit at home and watch new content. And so for us, that's also been a great opportunity where like we sent recording content to like a lot of narrators and a lot of our producers who may have come into the studio or in any studio before. And so they're sort of, I don't know, making lemonade out of lemons. And there's been this great ability, which by the way, I want to maybe take that out because I don't want to call COVID <laughs> lemons. That, <laughs>
1: I'll make it like light. yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> too dark. Yeah, yeah. But there's been this opportunity to have a ton of audio content because, you know, you can build a world while soundproofing your closet and going in there and recording it. And that hasn't been possible in a lot of other mediums because of the pandemic.
1: So speaking of, shifting listening patterns there's also and I don't know if it's it is COVID related but just the preponderance of new platforms right and I think you can't talk about spoken word and audio without mentioning Clubhouse <laughs> so I'm interested in both your mm-hmm. perspectives on what you're seeing and what excites you about a space like that
0: yeah I yeah. can pick off I guess so I think social audio is really interesting um and Allison and I actually had talked about this probably like a few months ago where clubhouse existed, but I think then it was very just like VCs on the platform talking to each other is when the invite list was still pretty closed. Um, and just had talked about sort of this potential for social audio. What really excites me is I think just thinking about it through an audible specific lens is something that we're starting to do is connecting creators with listeners. So I think for us like an Earl of V1 of social audio is our we've been doing these Audible live streams. So for example, this week we had like our editorial director, Abby West, talk to Common, or we had Amy Schumer talk to Isabel Wilkerson. And I think for us, like it's a little more curated because at Clubhouse, there are just so many rooms you can go like in and listen to literally any topic you want. And Audible, I think, because of our premium narrative. Bent. Like it's a more curated way for listeners to connect to creators beyond just the book they're creating. Like even this week, I think we had another one with Tessa Thompson who just narrated a title for us. Talked to Britt Bennett who wrote *The Vanishing Half*, and that's a great way for our customers to like ha- see a, a more natural conversation. I think there's a logical evolution of that too, and this is more just like my hope of where it'll go, which is audible listeners connect with each other already on other social platforms. So like, if you go on Reddit, there's a huge audible community there who talks about what they're listening, and makes recommendations and people run their own Mm. book clubs, like audible book clubs, and audible also runs book clubs, like our editors will recommend it and then release book club questions. But I think There's certainly a logical evolution of where, like, we can make there'll be more of that intersection of social audio that I think Audible Live is a great example, but I'm really excited about it. I'm still trying to figure out, like, sometimes I go into Clubhouse and I'm like, where do I go? But where do I go?
1: And but you still, there's definitely the FOMO. It's like, I'm missing out, but I don't know where to go.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Well, sometimes I open it, like, and I have that FOMO moment. And I open it and I'm like, oh, I heard there's this really cool room going on. But it's like at 5 p.m. that night. And right now I'm like, oh, now there's just it's I think it will evolve. I think as like the curation improves as they keep working on the product, it'll get there. I think they've opened it up to so many new users so quickly that a lot of people are just like getting the flow of how to use it right now.
1: Allison, what are you saying?
2: I mean, for me, as a venture investor, I'm not as high on Clubhouse as a lot of other VCs are, um, especially the ones who are invested. I do see a market for it, but it's not really, I think it's not the massive market that some people are pitching that it's the next Twitter or Facebook or major social media platform. I see it contributing to the death of the conference you know the in person conference mm-hmm. where you get really high quality speakers to talk yeah. and people spend thousands of dollars to be in the room that's already experienced you know major demise during covid but i think it's another nail in the coffin for that industry even once things open up because now you know i can hear elon musk speak yeah. Uh, house, actually, I don't have to spend those thousands of dollars to get to an event where he's going to be on the stage. And there is definitely is a market for that where people want access to kind of more of that live discussion based content that's more off the cuff. There's absolutely a market for that. I think, you know. And I like the idea that Clubhouse allows smart people to come together from all over the world for a discussion. And it's available to everyone all over the world if you can make it at that moment and be there to experience it. I mean, for me, I get notifications all the time of different talks happening. And I I tend to not join most of them because I'm doing something else at that particular moment. And I can't really step away to give it my full attention. But As it develops and as, you know, I think people are able to schedule a clubhouse event and you know you want to be there because you want to hear that person speak, you know, there definitely is a market for that kind of live, casual candor that you want to be a part of. I don't know if it's going to be this massive, you know, if everyone's going to be taking, you know, random times that other day, two times a day to, to participate because that does feel
0: a little too disruptive for me.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: Twitter is already potentially building that the Tour some spaces. sort of yeah. competing product. And I think Twitter would be a really logical and interesting place for those conversations to happen. I mean, they're already happening there. So I think there certainly will be an evolution. It won't just be Clubhouse, but it's an exciting trend because I think you're seeing it as it's more accessible. People can participate. It goes back to that first conversation we had, which is like, Headphones in constantly. Well, not everyone. At least in the U.S., like people are able to connect in terms of bandwidth, and so it, I do think it's like a new moment in terms of having the ability to connect via audio.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there's more to come there, especially with more Cuban and Fireside. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think people are trying different things. I think to both your points, there's no clear winner yet. Even you know hundred million dollars in investment, notwithstanding. <laughs> we'll um, have to see where it yeah. goes.
0: I was just going to say, I don't think it's zero a zero-sum game. Oh, yeah, like yeah, I yeah. think for us, what's it, been exciting about all of this over the past year and everyone getting in is so many more people know what a podcast is or know what's spoken. I mean, look, you've been doing this podcast since 2014. And how many people then were probably like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so I think for us, we're like so many more people are excited about spoken word audio and even understand now what Audible's doing. And so if they're using Audible and Clubhouse and whatever their, you know, apps or services they want to use, that's exciting.
1: Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah. I call Clubhouse the podcaster training wheels yeah, because you have to learn a couple of skill sets. You don't have to learn how to moderate a room, engage with your... Guest, watch people coming in and out resetting rooms and so it's interesting skills and if you don't have yeah. to worry about the recording or being on camera you can sort of very quickly like figure out if that's it used to be anchor you don't even need a hosting account or a mic now you can just open up clubhouse and see if you can entertain people <laughs> so and
2: that's an amazing that's yeah. an amazing thing
1: yeah i want to thank you both for this really fascinating conversation i'm Speaking of Clubhouse, one of the things I'm thinking of trying is uh, when the episode is published, maybe you know regrouping. You know, we can jump on a Clubhouse together, the three of us, and just episodes out. You know, what's changed since we've talked, and then just furthering the discussion. You know, the podcast junkies after dark, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> so
0: yeah.
1: if you're up, if you're both up yeah, for that, yeah, that sounds great. We can do that. So is there anything as we wrap up that either of you have coming up that you want to point people to? I always want to let listeners have the opportunity to engage with uh, both of you. Though, so, Darren, you first?
0: I don't think so, like in terms of me, in terms of Audible, in terms of...
1: Yeah, just people for learn more about, you know, what's happening at Audible and, and how to connect with you as well, yeah.
0: In terms of Audible, we have a ton of great content coming out soon. I, I think for podcast listeners, what could be really exciting is we have just a lot of more like story. Based podcasts. I'm gonna. This is just a totally personal plug. It's something that's been well, not personal, but so I'm listening right now. I'm turning this into making a recommendation, but to Donor Nine Six Two Three, which is one of our Audible original podcasts that I'm like deep in binging right now. It is dark and scary, but also really interesting about the world of. I don't like. Now I'm about to say sperm on air but like sperm donation banks and basically how essentially it's a totally unregulated industry which is pretty crazy when you think about the fact that it is people having children and mm. so it's a super interesting lesson i've been running through it so what i will say is i think for audible you know if you're looking just to discover more we there's a ton of great sort of more storytelling driven podcasts, audiobook, and so to check it out and and a great entry place is we have our plus catalog, which launched about six months ago. And so that's a lower price point and also just that's an unlimited listening catalog. So if you're a little more interested in discovery and you're not necessarily sure like, oh, I have that one audiobook I know I want to buy this month, it's a great place to kind of get started in terms of, more discovery, tons of story-driven content to listen to.
1: Make sure we list those in the show notes, Allison. Thanks.
2: So a shout out to the founders, any founders or hopeful founders that are listening. I developed a, a monthly series with my partner, Joanne Lynn called Five Minutes on the Fifth. So the fifth of every month, you can sign up on Calendly to uh, pitch your idea to Joanne or myself, and we give feedback. So anyone can sign up. No questions asked. And you can find the if you subscribe to our newsletter on our website, you will be notified of the Calendly link and you can sign up right there. And a little backstory on why we created it. Something that when I went from being a founder to an investor, something that I realized in the investor seat is that you really do know in the first five minutes of a conversation with the founder if the conversation is, is even worth having, because is company, a venture backable company, what you were talking about earlier, you know, TAM market size, is this an area that's exciting that we think we can get the return that we need? And I wound up speaking to a lot of early founders who were, you know, incredibly smart and, but they were working on a product that I knew would not be interesting to us, but probably wouldn't be interesting to any VC out there if they wanted to go the VC route. I mean, if they wanted to build a small business, it's fantastic and it's great. So I thought, well, we could save people a lot of time if they could just pitch their idea, kind of like Shark Tank before the idea is actually a thing, just pitch their idea to us. And we could tell them just how interesting that is to a VC investor. So it's really meant for someone who's just thinking about it, has a few ideas, wants to get just, you know, this is the concept. Do you like this concept? Because it could save some founders a lot of time and heartache to just know up front if it's venture backable or not. So that's really the goal of these five minutes on the fifth is my idea venture backable. And we'll give you our thoughts. Of course, we're not always right, but we'll share our thoughts with you.
0: I have one other one and you can choose whether what to use, but that's sort of between, I think, close to like MVP and Audible's heart, which is through the pandemic, actually Audible has been really involved in, in funding something called Newark Working Kitchens, which is basically sort of this, not sort of, a public, private, small business collaboration where we've served over, I think, 700,000 meals to low-income seniors and other low-income families uh, in Newark. It's helping keep restaurants in Newark open. I mean, while we haven't been in the office, usually we have something called Lunch Out Wednesdays, where Audible basically encourages and funds all of its employees going out and eating at local restaurants. So we're not just like staying in the office. We're actually contributing to the community. And so Newark Working Kitchens has been something that a way that we've been able to make sure that we are still involved in the community throughout the pandemic. So that is also something for anyone's interested in how to help there. I think it's a really powerful initiative.
1: Okay, we'll make sure we list all of those in the show notes. Well, thanks again to you both. I really appreciate you coming on, sharing your backstory and also getting and reminding people of the exciting opportunities that exist in audio and spoken word. So I'm sure there's more to come here.
2: Absolutely. Thanks, Harry.
1: Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 256. Tune in next week for my conversation with Kimi Culp, host of All the Wiser. Don't forget to check out our sponsor focus right and they're awesome also mine of gear specifically the scarlet 2i2 pro full details at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus podcast production and marketing provided by fullcast sign up for a free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash chat 15. don't forget to check out my newest podcast how to start a podcast for your business. The full eight-part series is now available at fullcast.fm. And if you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's presentation hashtag. Let's go with hashtag spoken word, tag us at podcast underscore junkies, and Allison and Darren at dbidol, d-b-e-d-o-l, and Newark VC, N-E-W-A-R-K-V-C. Thanks for all you do to support the show. Talk to you next week.